Okay, all right, everybody, come on back in. I'm going to keep us going on time because uh, not only do I want to be able to get you out of here on time, but actually, I'll do the last session and I got to zip out of here. Pastor Randy's going to run me to the airport because I got a plane to catch because tomorrow I get home tonight at about, Bob will do, there's going to have a, we're going to be a training that we're going to have afterwards. And I want to, I guess I should mention that too. I don't think he did. Uh, at 2 o'clock this afternoon for anybody that works with couples that are struggling, we have a three-hour training that Bob's going to leave this after, that lead this afternoon to help equip you to, on how to use this with couples who are having a hard time, and that's pretty much open to anybody that, that finds themselves in that position would want that training from, from 2 until 5 today. Um, I typically get to do that, but I, I have to run because I've got to get out of town I get home tonight at 8.30, and then I'll have a chance to repack my bag to catch a 6 o'clock flight tomorrow morning to Israel. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. It's an amazing trip. I wasn't expecting to go, but I found out that my stepfather is going, and my mom didn't want to go. It's a, he, he's going to be 80 next month, and my family was very upset that my mother was making my dad go alone. I didn't, I didn't see that as a big deal, but I wanted to go. My dad doesn't know the Lord. And this is going to be an opportunity for me to witness to my dad because time's running out and I got to make sure that I, I help him get there one way or another. So I'm going tomorrow to Israel, so I got to get home. A um, couple things I want to reiterate uh, that Bob, some points that Bob made, and, and I want to clarify one point that's an area where we get, where people get confused. When we talk about um, creating space, a lot of times people actually think that what we're meaning is creating space between you and your spouse, okay? It may be that sometimes, but the main thing we're saying you need to create space between is your buttons and your reaction. I don't know if you've noticed those two um, diagonal lines that were in those two red lines, but you need to break the cycle between when you get your buttons triggered and what you do, and you have the ability to do that. So think about it this way. That fear cycle is just a reactive spin, and basically you both go unconscious. And you're just doing, you're just reacting. You're focused on what the other's doing. You're not even really paying that much of attention to yourself, and what you're doing is you're usually justifying your behavior. At least that's what I do. Well, of course I'm reacting that way. Look what she did. You know, I would stop if she would stop. And it feels like she controls my participation. But if you imagine Brian and I doing a, uh, a, a tug of war, all right, come on up for just a second, if you would. I'll just have to, uh, we'll just have to do some, we can use Bob's guitar. No, I'm just kidding, Bob. All right. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Now, just imagine that we're both pulling a rope, okay, and we're both leaning back, all right? Now, let's say I get tired of this game. What do I have to do to quit? Let go. Guys, game over. Thank you. That was it. Game over. That's all it takes. The game, can, the, the fear cycle only continues when both people are participating. The second either one of you stops, game over. It's, so if there's a fear cycle going on, I guarantee you guys it means you're involved in it. And that's exciting to me to realize I have that much power. So I have power to control whether I get into those cycles or not by breaking, stopping what I do based on what I feel. I also have freedom because people mistakenly think that freedom and responsibility are separate, that freedom is freedom from responsibility. That's a childlike way of thinking. 
I actually, freedom and responsibility are like two sides of the same coin. I am only free to the degree that I accept responsibility for what I am responsible for. That's an adult way of thinking. They go together equally. And peace, the serenity prayer. I have the ability to find peace by accepting the things that I cannot change and letting it go taking responsibility and controlling the things that I can, and obviously that's only going to happen if I'm wise enough to be able to tell between what's my yard and what's Jenny's. Okay, so here's what I want you to do for a second. I want you to all stand up, okay? And if you're married and you're with your spouse, if you're not, you're gonna have, you can stay seated or you can just kind of ignore this. All right, I want you to stand up, and um, I want you to face your spouse, and I want you to take your, your spouse's hands... Okay? And I know some of you are afraid, here we go, he's going to do a renewing of their vows. No, I'm not. Okay? <laughs> Nothing quite like that. Okay? And this is what I want you to do. I want you to repeat after me. Okay? This is so key, and you will be so blessed if you do this. Okay? I release you from the job of managing me. This is good. You are no longer responsible. For me becoming the person God created me to be, I accept the job of CEO of myself because God designed it that way. Now look lovingly into each other's eyes, whatever these are, and say these words, you're fired. All right, that's good. Sit down. All right, now you are fully responsible for yourself from this day forward. And if you don't like that, you can blame me or God who created it. All right, so let's move on. This session is called Fulfilled and Equipped, Caring for Yourself. And how it fits here, that we've done the first session, which is personal responsibility, which is really the beginnings of creating a safe place. The second one adds to it, and when you start doing this well, accepting the responsibility, uh, personal responsibility is accepting the job. This step is doing the job, because just accepting the job, if you don't do anything with it, you're going to get the job done, all right? Now, this may be the single most life-changing paradigm-shifting session we have. Um, I would say that in our intensives, when we're working with couples in crisis, this is one that just knocks people off their feet. I will tell you also, it is by far and away the most countercultural message we have to share. Okay, I'm telling you right now, I have taken it on the chin for a lot of years because of what I teach on this. It's not so bad today, but uh, 10 years ago, man, oh man, when we started coming out with this stuff and writing about it and whatever, there was a lot of church people that started, you know, really challenging me into whether, really challenging my faith, you know, to the degree to which I bought into, you know, the secular humanistic idea of self, and, uh, you know, I, I took a lot of heat for this, and, and uh, I'm convinced this is a key area for us as believers to get right, or, or the, all of it falls apart, and there are some significant myths in this area, okay, like this one, Thinking more of others than you do of yourself is the sign that you are a loving person. 
baloney. Number two, giving is more loving than receiving, baloney. Number three, when someone you care for has a want or need, taking care of yourself is selfish or self-centered. That is also baloney. All right, now, I know those things sound like they make sense and they sound appealing, but guys, they don't even jive with the gospel. Look at this. Ephesians three sixteen through 19 says this. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. Remember, that, that power thing keeps showing up. Together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Okay? He's pretty darn clear about this. So let me go back through those myths and let me show you the alternative. Thinking more of others than you do of yourself is the sign that you are a loving person. No. Taking good care of yourself is always in the best interest of all parties involved because you can't give what you don't have. And that is without exception. Giving is more loving than receiving. Receiving from God, attending to oneself, and giving of oneself are all essential components of love. Any of those that are missing is going to limit or uh, diminish the degree to which love is truly uh, operating in you and in your relationships. They are all critical. Receiving from God, attending to oneself, and giving generously, sacrificially of what you've been given are all key components. When someone you care for has a want or need, taking care of yourself is selfish or self-centered. That is just not true. Taking care of yourself is always in the best interest of all parties involved without exception. Now, I'm talking about taking care of yourself well and making sure that you really are fully the person that God created you to be and to act in integrity and with love and care. Those are all components of it. But this is essential. And this is caring for the whole person, like I said last night. Your body... Your mind, your emotions, your heart, and your spirit. You can't neglect any one of those areas or something is going to be less and hurt. They are, you, you all, all of us have all four of those components of our being. All right, now let me show you scripturally why I say this, how this works, okay? So... For illustration purposes, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are that barrel, okay? And I'm going to help you to see, and again, it's okay with me if you think I'm full of beans. I have, as I've told you, I've had people say that to me before. And I'm suggesting if I can't thoroughly prove to you scripturally that what I'm saying is true over the next few minutes, then for goodness sakes, write it off. Because I know, I've, you know I'm giving you some theology a la Bob here, and I know I'm capable of having some goofy, wacky theology because I've had some in the past. 
and I figure I probably got some right now, and I just don't know what it is, and you may be able to be the ones to point it out. So as a bunch of discerning believers, I'm trusting that you're going to put your discernment caps on right now, and you're going to challenge it. And if, I, and if this stuff doesn't hold water, then throw it away. But I'm going to do my best effort to make this clear, as I believe the Lord has made it clear, at least to me. So this is fulfilling the great commandment, you are that barrel. Okay, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, actually, it starts here. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice all four of all those components of your being are quite thoroughly covered there. Body, mind, emotions, and spirit, right there. He said to love God, he's commanding you. This is the greatest commandment, he said. All right, now here's the problem that I ran into. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so how do I do that? And I had to first understand how God designed the whole deal to work. Because you see, what I mistakenly thought for the longest time was that, let's say, when it comes to my wife, I need to love my wife more, so what do I need to do? Well, I just need to figure out how to love her, right? Okay, well, how do you do that? Well, what do you do? You just kind of crank up the old love engine? Okay, and generate some love? Well, guess what? It doesn't work like that. It used to be that when people would come in, and a lot of times people think when they come into therapy and they say these words that this is the kiss of death, I no longer have any love for my spouse, or I never loved my spouse, actually. And I go, okay, this one will be easy, because that seems like that's an easy fix, but you got to understand how the whole deal works, or you won't realize that. If the way our society talks about and thinks about love, it would seem like the kiss of death. But guess what? The truth is, there is not one drop of love that generates from within my being. Not one drop. Notice this. 1 John 4, it says this, God is love. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, Bob is love. Okay, and you can put your own name in there, and I'm telling you, it doesn't say that either. So guess what? Love is God. Obviously, therefore, love comes from God. So for me to be able to respond to the first commandment, guess what has to happen first? I've got to first receive him, or I have nothing to give him. You cannot do the first part of the great commandment unless you first receive the love because you've got nothing on your own to give. It's got to come from him first. And that's why it says not far after this verse, I love him because why? He first loved me. Guys, it says it very clearly. This is how it has to work. You don't have any other option. So somebody comes in and says, I don't have any love for my spouse anymore. Okay, so what? What then needs to happen for that to change? You just need to open your heart and let the one who has it give it to you. 
Okay, here's something I don't normally share, but I feel impressed to do this. Um, had a really wonderful experience with the Lord around this deal at one point, and I realized that I had a funny question about why I pray the way I do, and the Lord really challenged me. Okay, when you pray to God, where do you typically imagine him to be as you're speaking to him? Yeah, up there, or if you're really tight with God, right here, right? Okay. And I started thinking about this, and it got me scratching my head at one point. And I thought, okay, that's a funny way to think about it, okay? When we tell children that they need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, what do we tell them they need to do? Ask Jesus into their heart. Okay, guys, let me ask you this. Does he really live there in you or not? And if he does... Why would you be imagining him out here somewhere when you're praying to him? Because he's already residing in here. In fact, this temple that I frequently mistakenly think is mine actually is his house. I have been hired as the caretaker of this temple, and I get to have the privilege of residing there with him. But guys, this is his property. And I'm only kidding myself when I'm thinking it's mine to do whatever I want with. Wrong. It's bought with a price. Now, here's why that becomes powerful. I finally realized at one point, he really lives in the whole being, head to toe. And when I look through these eyes, I have a choice as to whose eyes I'm looking through. Mine or his. And I'm telling you guys, if you ask to see through his, what you see will be different. So this is where it started for me. I knew I was having challenges with my wife, and I got clearer and clearer as I pressed into the Lord that there were aspects of her I was not seeing well. So I said, Lord, let me see her through your eyes. I want to see what you see when you look at Jenny. And I want to feel in my heart what you feel toward her. And folks, I was shocked at the multiple things that I saw that were different when I looked through his eyes versus mine. I saw different things. I felt different things. When I started feeling God's love for Jenny and seeing what it is about her that he adores. Now, I mean, he didn't have to work too hard to help me see the things he wasn't as crazy about because they were you know, kind of obvious to all of us, all right? But he really let me see the things that I was overlooking about her. And I was flabbergasted. I was amazed, and I still pray that prayer all the time. God, let me see her through your eyes and let me feel what you feel toward her. Guys, if you aren't feeling the love for your spouse that you want to feel, that's all you have to do to turn that around. And it'll turn around in a heartbeat. And if you're not feeling it, I guarantee you there's only one explanation. You have the door closed. And you have that right because God gives you the responsibility to be the keepers of the doors to your heart. And you can either have them open or closed and he will allow you that. He will respect you enough to, to be able to use the will that he gave you to, at your discretion. I mean, you have the right to take yourself on the fast track to hell. God gives it, respects us that much. He will let us choose hell. And he won't stop us. 
But we also have the ability to choose heaven and being with him. We have the ability to have the doors open or closed. It's up to us. And he respects us. He's such a gentleman. He respects us to that degree. And he won't force us to open the door. He'll just stand at the door and knock. And if we choose to keep it closed, fine. But if we choose to open it, he will not hesitate to come in. There will be no hesitation. The door opens, he's there. You want the love of Christ in you toward your spouse, it will be there. And that's why there's nothing of that concern that concerns me. But I tell you, I hear it all the time. I have no love for my spouse anymore. And they're basically saying, like, what are you supposed to do? That must mean it's over. Uh Uh-uh, only if you want it to be. Now, that's good news, and I get excited about that. Why? Because, frankly, I like feeling empowered. And I was a card-carrying codependent. Okay, I was a member of the If Mama Ain't Happy, Ain't Nobody Happy Club. Guys, I have relinquished my membership. I want to have more say over whether I'm in a good place than that, and I don't want Jenny to control who I am and how I show up. Because in the end of the day, there's only one thing we're going to be accountable for. When we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, we're going to have to make an account for how we showed up regardless of what life threw at us. And if I sit there before the Lord and say, and he starts calling me out on one thing or another, and I say, well, Lord, what do you expect? Look at that woman you gave me. Guys, I'm not going to get any further with that than Adam did when he tried. Okay, that's the oldest argument in the book. I'm sorry I ate the apple, but she stuffed it in my mouth. What was I supposed to do? And God said, "Uh uh-uh, Adam, I told you not to eat from that tree, and I don't care what she did. This is between you and me. And that's the way it's going to be for every one of us, whether we like it or not. We are going to each have our day of judgment. And the one thing we'll be responsible for is how we showed up regardless of what anybody around us did and what life threw at us. And I'm kind of glad about that because now that Jenny is not the problem and the solution, Jenny doesn't have all the power anymore, and she used to do it. And my biggest button of all is helpless and powerless. I hate feeling helpless and powerless. And I finally realized one day the reason I was feeling helpless and powerless in my marriage is because I gave Jenny all the power, and she didn't want it in the first place. So I'm excited about that. So we have the option to do all that. I got kind of sidetracked. Now, let's say we get full. We let God fill us to the full. And uh, somebody comes along and they're thirsty and they need something to drink. And we think, wow, this is cool. I got water. They're thirsty. Perfect. Match made in heaven. So what do we do? We give. And our water level goes down. Now, I want to backtrack for one second again because I forgot to mention something to you. Okay, let's go back to this. Okay, two extremes, either one going to get you in trouble. So let's say you get filled finally, and you've been walking around more or less empty for a long time, and you experience, let's say it's filled with water, and you experience God pouring in a full barrel of fresh, clean, clear water, and you're going, Oh, man, this feels good. I've been waiting for this forever, all right? And you decide because you haven't spent much time that way that you want to make sure you stay full, so you start hoarding what you have, all right? Now, let's say for the next year or two, that's all you do is you just hold on and make sure that water is full and that barrel is full in there, okay? 
After a couple years, if that's all you did, what's going to be condi- the condition of that water? Stagnant, stale, slimy. Maybe fit, for, you know, you're full of something, but it's probably not uh, fit for human consumption anymore. All right? Right? Does that make sense? Okay, so let's say then you do the other extreme. All right? And someone comes along and you give. And they, they drink and they are just so blessed and they are so excited because you sacrifice for them. Because notice your water level's down. You have less than you had before. But let's say you get so excited about ministry now that that's all you want to do. And you just keep pouring out and you keep pouring out and you keep pouring out. And that's all you do. After a period of time, what happens to the barrel? It goes empty again. Guys, immediately at that point, you are out of the game. You may want to serve God, you may want meaning and purpose in your life, but you got nothing to give, and you can't give what you don't have. So here's what has to happen for this to work. First, you have to let him love you and fill you full. And then you give generously, sacrificially from what you've been given. And then you pause, and then you fill, and then you give, and then you fill and then you give, and then you fill, and you do that over and over and over again. And over time, what stays the condition of your barrel and its contents? Full and fresh. And that's why he concludes with this. There is no commandment greater than these. And in the other version, it says... Upon this principle rests all the law and the prophets, or essentially the whole shooting match comes down to this principle right here. Jesus said this is the key to understanding the economy that he designed that we are subject to. Like it or not, we can't change it. This is how it's supposed to work. And when you take time to fill, you are not taking time away from your call. It's part of the call. You are not stepping away, taking a vacation from ministry. You are getting filled so you can give more and then fill some more. And I got to tell you, this is a principle that is particularly difficult for women. Hard for guys, harder for ladies. Ladies, you have been lied to by our culture and by the church, by a lot of people around subtly from the whole time you've been growing up. Okay, that's the way it is. Most women feel if somebody that they love has a want or need, the only appropriate Christ-like answer to give is yes. And guys, sometimes no is the better, more loving option because you're a human just like the rest of us and you can't give what you don't have. And that's just the way it works, whether you like it or not. And guys are trained differently. We actually are told we got to work hard. But we are actually given a permission that at some point in the day we can feel as if we've done a good day's work and it's now okay for us to clock out and we don't have to feel guilty about taking time for ourselves. I don't almost ever meet women that actually feel free to clock out. Not that you don't clock out, but every time you clock out you feel guilty about the fact that there's something that you were supposed to do that you didn't get done. 
And guys, I know this not because I'm a woman, obviously. I know this because I work with lots of hurting, desperately empty women. And you can only imagine the volume of tears that I've experienced when I've helped women to see that this is the way it has to be. And that when you take time to care for yourself, you are blessing everybody. And guys, like I said last night, your daddy, ladies, your daddy loves you big time. And when his girl is hurting and empty, it makes him cry. And when you take time to refresh yourself and your spirit, it brings joy to his heart. So please do that and fight those feelings that you've been conditioned to feel, which is guilt, which is not right. It is not of God. Okay? Theology a la Bob, but I challenge you to check that out scripturally. So a codependent marriage. Remember I told you I was a card-carrying codependent? Anytime you see your spouse as the source... Anytime you believe that the way you get filled up is to come home and plug into your spouse, to take something from them, that is codependent, and it can't work. Codependency is also a lie. Here's what healthy looks like. Christ-centered healthy marriage is one where we recognize he is the source. Take your plug there, not here. And then you will be filled, and then what you do is you share generously with each other from your abundance, not from your emptiness. And it's that simple. Now, I want to get into some of the... De- oh, let's see, before I go on. I will tell you that I, I used to do these conferences more than I do them now. And um, one of the things in this whole context that I would say quite passionately, and I would always get ladies mad at me when I'd say this, is I would, I would very proudly share with everybody, the fact is, truthfully, what I recognized once I broke the codependent thing is that I don't need Jenny for anything. I do not need her, period. And then for some reason, I'm being so proud of myself, and women would come up and be really annoyed with, the, with me when I said that because it sounded like I didn't care or whatever. And it wasn't that that I was saying, and I, but I, so I would just kind of blow it off until one day Jenny came up to me and said, you know, it bothers me too when you say that. So I started thinking about it, and I had to figure out, okay, so what really is the deal here? And I finally realized it, this, and I started qualifying it, and I don't get the same response that I got anymore. I still don't need Jenny to be the man that God created me to be. I am very capable, just me and God, of pulling that off. However, I realized I really do need her to have a great marriage. Okay? I can't really do that alone. Okay? So I really need her for that. But I don't need her, nor does she need me, for us to fully be who we were created to be by God. I am not... You know, the old Jerry Maguire statement at the end, for those who saw that movie, Jenny does not complete me. I am, quite, I am not a half person walking around, stumbling around life, looking for my other half so I can be a whole person. I was created whole in Christ. He is my completer. Jenny 
completes my marriage, my union, and that's valuable. That's meaningful. But guys, honestly, love is not most completely about need. We have this silly idea in our culture also that if you look at the progression of love, it's I love you, I mean I want you, I love you, I need you. Okay, that's where it gets goofy. Because truthfully, guys, love in its most passionate form is not about need, it's about desire. I don't need Jenny, but guys, I gotta tell you, I want her really bad. I got a real thing for my wife. I adore her. I don't need her. And truly, truthfully, the degree to which I think I need her is the extent to which I can't love her. Because it's not an option at that point. And she is most struck by my desire for her, my adoration of her, based on the degree to which I desire her, not the extent to which I can't live if living is without her. I just threw in a 1970s song verse for those who are old enough to know how much I just dated myself there. (laughs) Okay, yes, I am Grandpa Bob. I've been around since a long time ago. All right. So, let's talk some practicals for just a moment. Let's talk about feelings. Here's another lie. Feelings are often unreliable and frequently complicate relationships and decision-making. The truth is that feelings are never right or wrong. They are morally neutral. They are not good or bad. They are just data. Instead, feelings and emotions provide the essential information for effective self-care. Okay, the truth is, guys, you were created with three parts of this incredibly well-designed self-care system. Three components. Okay, heart, which is the data center. Okay, it's the information. Head, which is the processor and the motivator of action, determines what you need to do to take care of yourself. And hands, which carry out the marching orders. Okay, the information, the processor, the motivator, the action device, all right? You take out any one of those parts of the system and you are seriously handicapped. And the feelings are not supposed to be the ones that make the decisions for you. That's what the brain's for. But if you try and make good decisions without good data, you'll probably make, you could even make really good rational decisions. They'll just tend to be heartless. And we've had a world that has been, that has been filled with horror based on people making decisions that were heartless. Okay? They all three have to work together. Now, there was a time in 1988 where I had a moment of aha with God. I had been a stockbroker in Santa Barbara. I think I might have mentioned that yesterday. I don't, maybe not. Um, And God called me. We went to this church. I had no idea that ministry was in my future. Uh, I was really liking living in Santa Barbara. If you haven't been there, guys, it's a really cool place. I could spend the rest of my life in Santa Barbara quite happy. I'm a Southern California boy. I must not have said that. I'm a Southern California boy born and bred, okay? And I lived, I grew up on the beach. I love the beach. How in the world God pulled me to about a place as far away from a beach as you can possibly get is beyond me. 
But in 1988, I got called out of the brokerage industry, and I got called to go to school to go into ministry. Didn't know if it was going to be a pulpit ministry as a pastor or a counseling ministry, but in the 80s, there was a lot of talk of you can't really combine psychology and Christianity. It's not as present today as it was then. It's like trying to mix oil and water. So I was confused because I was going to a pretty conservative church, hanging with a bunch of conservative believers that just about had me convinced, but God called me. So I, weirdly, I got called to this place, Springfield, Missouri. I'm telling you guys, I had no idea where Springfield, Missouri was. I had to get out a map and look it up. And Jenny and, and me and our, at that time, three kids moved across the country. I'm telling you, we did the opposite. For those of you who are old enough to remember this, are the Beverly Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies got called from where I live now to Beverly Hills. I got called from Beverly Hills to the Ozarks. I couldn't figure that deal out at all. Okay? Now... I'm in school. I'm going to a conservative Christian college, and chapel attendance was mandatory, and that's an important part of the story because we had a guest speaker one day in chapel, 1988, and this guy comes up. He's supposedly pretty famous. I didn't know who he was, but he comes up to the podium. Didn't look like any of us. I mean, all 1,000 students out in the audience, you know, we all look like students, and this guy had this little brown wool suit on. He's a real old guy, and he kind of waddles up to the podium. And he looks at us all, and he said something that made me want to get the heck out of there. He looks at us all, and he goes, okay, everybody, thank God for pain. And I went, thank God for pain? This guy's a whack job. He's a masochist. I mean, I'm not going to thank God for pain. I mean, I'll deal with pain. I can deal with pain because I'm a guy, and I can manage pain. But I'm not going to thank God for pain like, hey, God, this is cool. Bring it on. And I wanted to get up and leave, but unfortunately, the attendance Nazis were still up in the rafters, and we had assigned seats, and they were counting seats, and if I had got up and walked out, I'd have been counted absent. If you got too many absents, you got kicked out of school, and I was called. So I had to sit there and listen to this guy, and I had had no idea who he was. I look him up now. He's deceased now, but he, you can Google this guy, and there's a lot on him. His name was Dr. Paul Brand, and he was a missionary doctor. And he served most of his career in India, and he worked in leper colonies. And he and his team are actually credited with, after centuries of not understanding what was physiologically going on with leprosy, these guys are credited for cracking the code. And what they determined, and I'm not a medical guy, I'm a psych guy, okay? Uh, So I'm just, those who are medical people here are just going to have to tolerate the degree to which I don't fully get it. But what I learned was, okay, that leprosy, in essence, is a degenerative disease of the nerve endings in the extremities. So in other words, layman's terms, the ends, the nerve endings in the ends of your fingers and toes start to die and you lose all feeling. And that explained a whole lot of stuff. So then he's, he's there and he's telling us gruesome, horrifying stories. And I don't want to do to you what he did to us because he made us squirm in our seats. But I got to tell you the one that got through to me because this one got my attention. This was where I had the aha. He said, one night this guy with leprosy went to bed in his tent, body intact. And he woke up the next morning and mysteriously one of his fingers was missing. And he had no clue what happened to it. Could you imagine how disorienting that'd be? I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate it when I misplace digits. You know, that's just, that's just not a good thing. You know, you'd be looking under the bed saying, gosh, I know I had that last night when I went to bed. Okay? Had no idea what happened. So he goes to the doctor, and the whole team starts doing this detective routine, and I don't remember that part of the story, but I remember the conclusion. This is what they determined. Okay? In essence... A rat came into his tent and 
ate his finger off his body while the guy slept, and he felt nothing. Now, I'm telling you, if in the middle of the night I feel the whisker of a rat touch my (laughs) finger. Guys, that is all it's going to take. But let's say I'm so tired I sleep through that. Folks, one nibble is all it's going to take. And I'm going to be up with a start looking for my shoe or something to smack the life out of that rat. I am not going to be laying there while it eats my finger off my body. And then Dr. Brand would come back up to the podium. He did this over and over through the message. And he looked at us all again. He goes, thank God for pain. Where would you be without it? And the light bulb went off. And I go, aha, I get it. Guys, pain is just an indicator created by God on purpose, with purpose. And you're not supposed to enjoy it any more than you're supposed to enjoy the red light indicator on your dashboard of your car when it starts to flash to say you're out of oil or pull over, you got a problem with your car. That's not a fun, woohoo, this is great, I'm going to get stuck on the side of the road moment. Yay, let's get excited. No, this is a pay attention right now. And pain will always tell you one of two things. Either the damage is being done and you need to stop what the heck is going on before it becomes a real problem or that damage has been done and healing needs to occur and you need to do what's necessary to facilitate healing. But guys, either one of those is news you can use. You cannot adequately care for this temple if you do not have adequate access to the information system that God has built into you to inform you so you can take good care of the temple he's entrusted to your care. That's how it works, and it doesn't matter what the emotion is. They're not good. They are not bad. They're just data, raw data. Now, sometimes feelings generate from beliefs that can be right or wrong. So, for instance, let's say you were conditioned throughout your whole childhood With messages like Bob mentioned last night, you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything, you're good for nothing. And something or someone says something or does something that triggers that button. And because you heard it all your life, you got a bruise there and you're sensitive to that. And maybe you're afraid, well, maybe it's true. See, what my dad said was true. Guys, that's going to create some serious emotion. The emotions are a perfect reflection of the belief. The emotions aren't wrong. What needs to be challenged is the belief, because beliefs can be right or wrong, true or false, good or bad, but not feelings. They're just neutral information. So feelings is information. Feelings are neither good nor bad, right nor wrong. Feelings are an integral part of a God-designed personal care system. Feelings are reliable sources of information regarding needs, desires, and beliefs. Now, at the end of this chapter in your book, there is a test that's worth taking to see how well you do. Okay, and basically it says on a scale, it's on page, this is on page 32, on a scale from 1 to 25, 1 being the worst, 25 being the best, rate how well you care for, you take care of yourself in each of the following areas, body, mind, emotions, and spirit. So you get a score out of 25 in each of those four areas, you'll see kind of the goal here. And here's what I want to tell you, okay, to, to know how to do this, all right? 25 means you are a stud or a studette, 
okay? You are like on the physical thing, taking care of yourself physically. A 25 is you are like a finely tuned Olympic athlete. You are amazing, the best that you can possibly be. And um, a zero or a one is um, you are really bad, okay? You're in terrible shape, okay? It's, it's a miracle that you are living, that you are breathing, okay? It's that kind of thing. That's the scale. And you want to honestly mark yourself in each of those four areas. And I give you a few things to kind of look at in each area to get an idea of how that, you know, where, where it works. And then you add it all together and get a score out of 100. Now, I'm going to let you do this on your own, but I'm encouraging you to do it. But I want to tell you how to interpret this, okay? What you don't want to do is view this like a test at school, okay? This really isn't about pointing out to you how much you suck. Pardon me if that's bad language, okay? Or Greg, Greg Smalley once told me that if you put a TH at the end of any word, it makes it more spiritual, so to point out how much you sucketh, okay? All right, this isn't the point, okay? It's not like you're trying to see if you fail or not because some people, when they're, being audi- when they're being honest with themselves, maybe they get a 50, okay? When I was a college professor, which I did that also, when I was a college professor um, and I gave somebody a 50 on a test, okay, that's bad news, you failed. That's not the way you want to look at this. This is the way you want to look at this. Whatever your score is, whether it be a 20, whether it be a 50, whether it be an 80, The difference between that score and 100 is the extent to which you are missing out on the blessing. Because, guys, our Lord wants us all to be riding at 100. Jesus said very clearly in John 10.10, I came that you would have life to the full, life more abundantly. Notice what he says here. I came. This is why I came. This is why I died on the cross for you, that you would live life to the full, that you'd be at a hundred. So just notice it's not, don't look at this in terms of, wow, I'm, I'm terrible at this. I'm, I'm failing. Look at this and say, wow, I'm giving myself a 50. That means there's 50% more available that I'm not taking advantage of, that I have access to if I do this different. That's the way you want to see it, as an encouragement, as God's opportunity, giving you opportunity to receive more of the blessings. All right, so we're ready to take a little bit of a longer break here. Um, We're going to take a 20-minute break, come back at 10.30. Last chance, guys, to enter for the drawing, so look on that back page and pull that thing out and put it in the, uh, in the little basket in the back, back there on the book table, and we'll go ahead and we'll draw as, we, as Bob begins the next session. Okay, two more sessions. We're on the way there. Enjoy the break. <laughs>